0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before Yahweh throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to Yahweh when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 gerahs. half a shekel as an offering to Yahweh. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give Yahweh's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give Yahweh's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before Yahweh, so as to make atonement for your lives. Yahweh said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze, with its stand of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet." When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn a food offering to Yahweh, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations." Yahweh said to Moses, Take the finest spices, of liquid myrrh five hundred shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon half as much, that is, two hundred and fifty, and two hundred and fifty of aromatic cane, and five hundred of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil." With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them Yahweh said to Moses, take sweet spices stacked and Onika, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall there be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to Yahweh. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have called by name, Bazalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, Of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, Of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And Yahweh said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath." Because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 582 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, if memory serves. This is March 21st, 2023. Yesterday was the first day of spring. And today, a former president of the United States of America may or may not get arrested. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I haven't seen the news break just yet, but it's advertised. And so that'll be fun. Uh, Who knows what will happen? God knows what will happen. Lots to sort through. If that does indeed go down, it will be a wide, woolly world moving forward. And, you know, it's interesting, right? It's interesting to consider that the years and decades ahead are not going to be just a repeat of what the years and decades past have been. I'll be 37 this November, and I don't anticipate if the world stands, if the Lord wills, I live another 37 years. I don't anticipate the next 37 years of my life to be just a repeat of the last 37, nor do I suppose that they will be the last 37 years just in reverse. I don't see it that way. I presume, based on what I have read and heard and what I think I understand of the 37 years that preceded this past, so the 37 years before I was born, I presume from that that the next 37 are going to be very different. Technology will make the future very different in a lot of ways, at least at a surfacey level. There are some odd moves from certain people with the help of technology, and in some sense with the hindrance of technology, because tech can either help us to see some things more clearly, or it can blind us. For a proof of this fact, just watch a whole bunch of teenagers who have smartphones these days sit next to one another looking at their smartphones. Consider that that was not even an option for teenagers decades ago. It wasn't an option. They didn't have smartphones to be sitting there and looking at the smartphones. Did they have other Items of interest, maybe magazines, for instance, that they could ignore each other by looking at, sure. But there's something of an illusion with smartphones, particularly with social media and the ability to text or watch videos, send audio messages, call each other. There is something of an illusion, perhaps, at least possibly, that we are making these social connections with each other when we're not, when we're not actually And everything's filtered, right? So it's like in olden times when men would be sent off to war and they would write letters home or letters would be sent to them from their family and their friends back in the home country. And those letters would get read by their officers or by military intelligence, just to make sure, right? Just to make sure nothing sensitive was being communicated that might fall into the wrong hands and might give away a battle plan that might lead to a defeat for your army, your country by your enemies that you were at war with. It's not exactly that. Again, in some ways, there's no new thing under the sun. And so this is exactly that. And in some ways, this is totally different. But insofar as Solomon was on something when he said there's no new thing under the sun. I would say in that sense, in a macro sense, in principle, this is exactly that, that we live in the midst of right now, but in a cultural sense, in a cultural sense, the people who want to influence culture and they use persuasive technology to try and nudge us in the direction of thinking so that we will then speak and behave the way that they believe is proper. Those folks are reading our mail before it goes to the people we are sending our mail to. There are technologies that you can use, software that you can use to encrypt. You can get a VPN. I think it's a great idea. I have a VPN on our machines so that hopefully there's a little bit more privacy. We don't have big corporations and political parties and NGOs and transnational organizations profiling us to figure out how to manipulate us or bully us or neutralize us. Also, those pieces of software you have to trust. This is something my uh, cousin Micah and my cousin Marshall, or our cousin Marshall, talked about here a couple of years ago when we were discussing how do Christians in particular protect themselves online because he's a web marketing guy And a web developer, and he knows a thing or two about web security and how things work in that front. He's got to know it to be able to keep his clients safe and to keep their information safe. Payment information, for instance, you don't want hackers hacking into your website and grabbing all of the sensitive info for your customers and then selling that online. And then you are the one who gets a black eye because you weren't interested in protecting their information. You don't want that. And so effort has to be put in on the front end to making sure that doesn't happen. But you're still going to have to trust that somebody else's tool to preserve your privacy is doing exactly that, that there aren't backdoors that have been programmed in for certain people to be able to read your mail, because that could be. And in fact, whistleblowers in big tech and in intelligence agencies have been warning about that for years. And again, going back to this whole persuasive technologies bit, these things are, whether you have privacy or don't, in many cases today, designed to modify our behavior. Not just to augment our ability, that's the way we think of them, and that's how we should try to use them wisely to augment our abilities to do what is good, to know what is true, to enjoy and personify to whatever extent we can. Beauty. But we have to take care. We have to guard our hearts for from them flow the wellsprings of life. You have to be careful about who is influencing you in subtle ways. Because a hundred years now, a hundred years of More advanced techniques for propagandizing, propagating, if you will, ideas, particularly for those who are not, shall we say, lovers of God. The folks who have been practicing and refining their techniques for a hundred years, and now they've enlisted technology in that effort to promote their worldview, their vision of the good life, those folks have not gotten worse at it. They've gotten better at it. If we are more sophisticated, then that's how we protect ourselves. We can't control whether they are more or less sophisticated. We have to control whether we understand how to protect ourselves. But part of that is, in my view, you say what is good and what is true, and you're looking at beautiful things that are excellent and praiseworthy so that you're thinking on those things. And how you understand them has to go back to God's word. It has to. You have to use God's word as your objective fixed standard to know what is good and what is true. Because we're seeing increasingly authors of beloved works of classic literature are finding out that their publishers, without consulting them, without telling them, are going in and modifying their works to remove objectionable, offensive material words and phrases that might trigger a minority person that are out of step with the current spirit of this age, the current sensibilities, which you can be sure are going to change again tomorrow and next week, and next month and next year. But what if that happens with the Bible? What, hap- what if that happens with Bible translations? And this is why it's good to have physical print copies of the Bible, and occasionally if you see something that's just a little bit of a head scratcher in your Bible app or your favorite Bible software, Bible website, go back to the print copy and check. Check to make sure the wording hasn't changed. Dictionaries are changing wording on certain entries, omitting certain entries, adding certain entries. Certainly, we have fact checkers not really neutral and objective, but they claim a kind of neutrality and objectivity. If they come for the Bible, we need to have some kind of a stopgap. But in the meantime, I'm not saying I think that the Bible has been modified and tweaked and censored and edited by the woke folk and the globalists and the leftists online. Not yet. I think that they're on the path. And it's just a question of, When they might uh, try to do something like that, if they haven't done it yet, and some people do, I mean, they, they have their little boutique Bibles that they modify, the Queen James Bible we've talked about on this podcast, for instance, but we need to know what the word says. We need to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against God. And we need to recognize that we have a lot, a lot in God's word to teach us. We have a lot to make us wiser, to make us holier, to make us more calm, more at peace. Really, if you look at it from a certain angle, the whole of God's Word is a story of peace lost for mankind and the restoration of peace between God and man, between men and their neighbors, between mankind and the creation that is broken by the effects of sin, all of scripture is in a certain sense about the loss of peace and what is necessary to restore peace, to make peace again, something that is realizable. And that will confuse a lot of people who look at all of this death and dying and even just what I read about various things being made for the tabernacle and don't put blood on this, but you can put blood on that. And you say, how is that killing of animals making peace? That seems as though it's breaking things even worse, but it's a picture of what Christ is going to do because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we know, and this is why the earth is so often filled with violence, we know That when there is sin, ultimately, there has to be forgiveness or there's going to be penalty. There's going to be a cost. If things escalate up and up and up and up, then you will have war and you will have killing and being killed. You will have, in some sense, the pursuit of that promise that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so you ask yourself, well, can't we just have forgiveness without the shedding of blood? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Sin brings death. Someone's going to have to pay for that in order for this to be made whole again. Someone's going to have to pay for that. The blood of lambs and bulls is not enough. And it never was going to be enough. But it was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of Christ. Now we don't sacrifice animals because we have Christ, but we still have death and dying in the world because the creation has not been fully restored yet. It will be, but it has not been yet. We're still looking forward to that ultimate restoration. And in, again, a certain sense, every Christian who is saved but is still in the world, not of the world, but in the world, is a foreshadowing embodied. If Christ is in us, the Holy Spirit dwells with us, then we are living out a foreshadowing of what God is doing with the rest of creation, the new heavens and the new earth. They're going to be brought about by God himself. And for us, we are striving to trust, to avail ourselves of grace through faith not of works, lest any man should boast, and yet walking in good works. And this is something of the paradox of the Christian life. And this is something of the paradox of who God is. He is not simple in the sense that some simple person who's just foolish will readily understand him, or if he doesn't readily understand him, then God doesn't make any sense, and therefore God doesn't exist. No. God is simple insofar as He's not made up of parts. I believe that he's not a compound being. He's a simple being. He's whole, indivisible, and yet again with the paradox, he is ultimately incomprehensible because he's God in three persons. And Jews and Muslims, for instance, will say, "Well, then that that's not God. You guys are tri you're you're tritheists." And we say, "No, no." No, we're not tritheists. We're monotheists. We believe that the Lord our God is one, and yet he is God in three persons. Not three distinct gods, not three separate gods, not one God and then two emanations. No, no. God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, that's an invention of the New Testament. That's an invention of Paul, for instance. Or that's an invention of the early church. They came up with that. And no, that's not correct. No. No, they recognized that. God did that. Going back a few years, and I hate to make this kind of a analogy in some ways, but if you remember back in the Obama days, he gave a speech at one point in which he famously said to... Those in America who had businesses that were successful, corporations that were successful, organizations that were successful, they had profited from such, they were enjoying the fruits of their labors, they were wealthy and comfortable, he said, you didn't build that, someone else built that. And what he was trying to do is he was trying to flip the script and put the burden of proof on wealthy Americans to justify keeping what belongs to them. Instead of prove to the people, government, why you should be taking their wealth, no, no, let's tell the American people to prove to the government why that actually belongs to them. And it's a very twisted way of looking at things. It's a very opposite way of looking at things from what should be. But we see this in the Old Testament where God confronts peoples who are worshiping false gods. He confronts his own people, but he confronts other people's who are worshiping false gods, worshiping other gods, and we see God jealously reclaiming in their minds and in their hearts and in their perception what rightfully belongs to him. That's his. And this is his. And this other thing over here, that's also his. And it's all his. And he is the most high God. Not just another God. He is the most high. He is the God above all gods. Besides him, there is no other. He has no... Here, he has no parallel, he has no equal. He is God. And the gods of the nations might as well be idols. But then you might say that God is the one who has the rightful claim to say, you didn't build that. Someone else built that. I built that. You know, I was taking my eldest son out for a driving lesson on Sunday afternoon. We needed to fuel up the van. And so I said, hey, I'm going to have you drive me. Over to the gas station. We're going to fuel up after church. And John wanted to ride along. Andrew was asleep in his car seat. And so he just stayed with us. And as we were driving into King Supers to get some gas, John comments from the back seat, boy, that's a big store. and God made that. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> kind of, I mean, kind of, sort of. He made men who were able to make that. So I guess he gets credit there. He made the materials that went into building that building. So he gets credit there. He made the land on which that store, that building is built. So he gets credit there. In a sense, he made it possible for us to make that, but he didn't make that. It's a little bit complicated. And he didn't have a follow-up, but neither do I. And the point is, when we are coming to this passage in Exodus, for instance, we don't see God outlining, detailing all of what he is going to be making in the way of the tabernacle and the various pieces of furniture and utensils and tools. He's not the one making the clothes for Aaron and his sons as priests. He's not the one doing all these things. He's giving instructions, and he even specifies who it is that is going to be making these things. That God has blessed them with the ability to do so skillfully. He's also adding a command to do it now in a timely manner. Here are your instructions. Here's what I want the materials to be. Here are our specifications. Here's the number. Here's the orientation. Here's the size, and there's a little bit that's left undefined, whereas the skilled craftsman named is said to be creative, artistic. He's able to make things that are beautiful. We don't get every last little dot and pixel of resolution in how these things looked. We get a general idea. And I would say that the one actually doing the work has a framework. He's operating within. Within that, he can be creative. Within that, he's got the license to make this beautiful as he sees what is beautiful, as he knows what is beautiful. God's put in him a recognition of what is beautiful, and he is going to express that, and God is glorified by that individual expression that individual artistic endeavor. It's important that we don't miss that this is here, that this is a part of it. This is part of how God is being worshiped, not just in the put on these clothes and do this stuff at these times in this way, sprinkle the blood here, burn the incense there, but even the making of these things is an act of worship after a fashion. Now, moving on there is a amusing thought provoking post up at not the Be this morning john nax not his real name posts quote what's your theological stance that would get you in this position end quote and pictured is a character from the disney movie rapunzel or tangled i suppose is what it's actually called but it's about rapunzel And it's the rogue, the love interest, the Prince Charming sort of character who's upset everybody and he's got a dozen or more swords pointed at his face and he's crossing his arms and looking unsurprised like he was expecting to get that kind of a reaction and he's okay with it. It's fine. So the question is, what's your theological stance that would get you in this position. I'm going to read through some of these, and we'll comment briefly. <laughs> Abe Bagby at Bagby underscore Abe, polygamy should not be illegal. That's how we start this off. That's how we start this off. Uh, and I would agree, by the way, uh, just so you know, you know, break out your torches and pitchforks. I would agree, and I can explain. I have explained on this podcast before why I would say that. If you haven't heard it, I'll do a refresher. I'll cover it again. But I would agree with this position. And yes, he's right. Uh, <clears throat> that will <laughs> that will get people uh, sharpening the pitchforks and lighting their torches in our day. Maybe less and less. That's an interesting thing to consider as Muslims for instance, might make up the majority of Western Europeans. They're increasingly a sizable minority in many European countries, but they might make up the majority here in the coming decades as native Europeans are not having children at the same rate, anything approaching the same rate that Muslim migrants from the Middle East and from Africa are having children. And newsflash, Muslims are typically Good with polygamy. They like it. Uh, They say, yep, cool. How many wives can I have? Okay, I'll have that many. More than one in many, many cases. So that could push the envelope. That could change the conversation. And it's not to say that the folks who are dead set against polygamy are all going to change their minds, but it is to say that we could see politicians who don't want to offend moderating their position as Muslims become a larger and larger minority in these Western European countries, and not long after in the United States as well. Some other responses. I'm not going to read all of these. Here's Miss Crown and Glory, Mrs. Julian Yu. The Lord's Supper should be presented with wine and not grape juice. Cue the daggers. I actually agree with that one too. I'm good with that. I think that's a good idea. I've been to a conservative Presbyterian church where that was the case. And uh, I think it was good. I think it was a good idea. Wine is wine. Wine is not grape juice. Grape juice is grape juice. Wine is wine. This is my body. This is my blood. It's not a hill to die on, but I do agree with her on that. Uh, Tulip, unless you're reformed and biblical, then you'd agree. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I quite understand that, Linda Maxwell. Not sure. Dwayne Green. The gifts of the spirit have not ceased. Well, I agree with that one as well. Uh, further invest. At further invest. Life did not originate from earth. It was brought here. Well, okay. So kind of insofar as God did not originate on earth and he placed... Adam and Eve in the garden, and he made life on earth. Insofar as he's the source of life, if that's what you mean, then I would agree. If you mean aliens did it, well, then mm, don't know about that. Don't know about that. Next one I eat carbs at zk underscore rollup underscore chad. Pope Francis is a Satanist. Ah, Adam. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Uh, let's hear your argument. Uh, That's what, that's what I would say. I'm not going to get all stabby about it, but I'm listening. Uh, Ryan at, as it is underscore written, all Christians are priests. Revelation one, six, no separation between priest and laity. And anyone who claims that they're a priest in any way separate from another Christian is a heretic. Um, Well, let's hold on. Let's back up. We do have overseers and deacons. We do have those offices. And not every Christian is an overseer. Not every Christian is a deacon. Every Christian might oversee what it is that's been entrusted to them, but that's different. That's distinct from overseeing the church in an official way, an officially recognized way. Uh, All Christians should serve. And so there's a Greek word that we get the term deacon from, but to serve is not necessarily the same thing as to be a deacon in the sense that we see qualifications for deacons in the New Testament. And so all Christians are priests. What did I just read for you from Exodus? They were not regarded as common people. The priests were consecrated. In a very special way. Are all Christians consecrated so intentionally just by virtue of believing in Christ, being in Christ? If you hold to that view, I I would say slow your roll and wait a second. Okay? Just wait a second. Also, I would I would want to talk with you and disagree with you on the position you're taking, but I could do that in a loose handed way and say, oh, well, OK, I can see why you might say that right up until right, right up until you say that it's heresy. It's heresy to claim that there's any kind of a distinction between those who are in positions of authority in the church and those who are the laity. OK, you you, you go too far, right, to say anybody who disagrees with you on this as a heretic, you go too far. Now who's making distinctions and separations, <laughs> right? You're basically saying anybody who disagrees with me who's a Christian is not actually a Christian. It's like, eh, that's kind of a cheat. Kind of a cheat. People do that on lots of questions, lots of issues, but not so fast. Uh, there's no such thing as a pre-trib rapture. I would actually agree with this as well. I know Left Behind as a series of books, movies. It's Got a lot of people in my generation, a lot of people who are alive today who are Christians, just assuming that that's the only way to read Revelation. Uh, I I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. I think an argument could be made for other interpretations. I am not so sure which one I favor uh, holistically, but I would say that post mill folk. I, I like the cut of their jib. I really do. I appreciate the fruit that comes with post-millennial theology. Uh, I do. Does that mean that they're right? Uh, maybe. We'll find out, right? We'll find out. I'm okay with finding out. I'm confident that Revelation is true in everything that it tells us about the end times. I am also comfortable with embracing the fact that I, I don't know. I don't fully understand it. I would lean towards saying that there will be no pre tribulation rapture. I think the church will go through that. Uh, I worry a little bit that people who are just so sure God wouldn't put the church through the tribulation, that maybe they haven't acquainted themselves with martyrdom in the New Testament or in church history there's a lot of it there's a lot of it today in countries like China for instance North Korea for instance a lot of middle eastern countries God doesn't just rapture Christians out of situations where they might be tormented persecuted martyred and so why would we go assuming that he will in the end times I'm I'm just not sure I'm not sure about that I'm not sold uh, in fact it would seem more consistent if he didn't. Now, if he does, I'm good with that. I, I would rather be pleasantly surprised, very pleasantly surprised, to put it mildly, than say, oh man, really? We're still here? <laughs> uh, Thursday, AKA G. Syme at Who Was Thurs? Unfortunately, believing what the Bible says about patriarchy in almost any evangelical church. That's sadly true. I would not say that that's true at Summit View Community Church, I would say that all of us today have a hard time sometimes knowing where exactly to plant ourselves, perhaps, with regards to biblical patriarchy, given the social mores today. Uh, I don't accept that Paul was saying what he was saying in the New Testament, what we read in the Old Testament, it was written in the Old Testament, because of cultural context and ours is different, so we can just ignore all of that. We can just go along with the androgyny and egalitarianism. No, no, that's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. But yeah, it, there are a lot of American Christians who really are not comfortable with what the Bible actually says about male and female. He created them. It's very sad. It's very sad. Alden at mediocre sale guy. Head coverings still apply today. All right. Well, timeout. Head covering for women. I'm sure that's what you mean. Is it a bad idea? No. Do you have to wear head coverings? Uh, I would also say no. I'm not not convinced of that. But I would listen to you. I mean, I'm, you know, if, if you want to make the case, let's hear the case. Um, I've known some women. I, my dad was raised Mennonite, so some things that we've been to in my lifetime. There were more conservative Mennonites who the women wore head coverings. And it was fine, right? It was fine. It was a little bit different, but it was fine. Uh, We've actually got, Lauren and I have a friend, Dickey, who wears a head covering and her daughters, if memory serves, wear head coverings. And they're Lutherans, for crying out loud. And that's fine right? That's fine. If that's your conviction, here's what I would say. You should do it. If that's your conviction, then you should do it. If that's not your conviction, then I would say, let's hold that loosely and let's not either condemn women who do wear head coverings or condemn them who don't. See also the whole Muslim thing, right? As Muslims become a greater percentage of the population here in the U.S. and in Europe, which is expected because we native Europeans are not having children enough. Many of us, I mean, my wife and I are, but many of us are not. Uh, What do you do when Muslims convert to Christianity? Do they perhaps possibly still hold to the idea that they should wear head coverings? Uh, that's, That's quite possible. And then what will you tell them? Will you say, oh, you're a Christian now. You don't need to wear that. And then they find verses that actually talk about women keeping their head covered in the New Testament. Uh, We need to be careful that we are actually communicating the truth. We're rightly handling the word of truth and not speaking out of turn and saying things aren't in there that are in there. Saying that things are in there that aren't in there. Both directions. Um, He who throws the two. Uh, One. Mary was a sinner, too. Mary and Joseph had other kids after Jesus. Uh, Yes, yes, that's correct. Both of those are correct positions. Yeah, Mary was a sinner. She was. Jesus being born to Mary was not contingent on her not being a sinner, period. The sin is passed down through the male line. And that's part of why she was a virgin when Jesus was born to her. And also, this has this has to do with consecration, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she never had any other children. You know, see also Hannah in the Old Testament. She prays for a child to be born to her. Her husband's other wife is taunting her because she's got children. And God hears the prayer of Hannah, blesses her, opens her womb. She's able to have Samuel. Samuel, when he's weaned, is consecrated to God. And then... Hannah goes on to have other children. I would say when we read about Jesus' brothers and his mother coming to see him, it's not talking about cousins. It's talking about brothers, half-brothers. James describes himself as a brother of Jesus, half-brother, half-brother of Jesus, right? The Catholics get weird on this, and I would say they're wrong. They're wrong. Uh, Fun one, Aaron Taylor Bigfoot is a descendant of Esau. Here I stand. Well, <laughs> I can't tell if you're serious, but um, that would be something. That, that would be something if that turned out to be the case. He was a hairy guy, and I I don't know. I don't know. So that's all. That's all for those. Let's move on in the time that we have left. I have some other things I want to get to and talk about For instance, another controversial position to take, which is supportable from the scripture, which you can be a Christian and hold to. In fact, we read that throughout church history, lots of Christians have held to this view. And that is Genesis 6-4. Genesis 6-4 is where we read about the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim. There were giants in the land in those days and also afterward, the sons of God had sexual relations with human women, is how I read it, that the sons of God were fallen angels. And I was recently talking about this with my neighbor, J.P. Chavez, and he shared with me a video from Jordan Cooper, Lutheran minister. I like Jordan Cooper, I disagree with him on this. Jordan Cooper prefers the Sethite view, Augustine also apparently favored the Sethite view. The sons of God being described in Genesis 6 are the sons of Seth, righteous Seth. The daughters of men are the daughters, female descendants of Cain, who killed his righteous brother Abel. Uh, I shared a video with JP of Doug Wilson saying, well, that's kind of, you know, weird, right? Weird that Christians and non-Christians getting married and having children might produce giants that, that... And it doesn't typically happen. Something else is probably going on here in the text. And I would agree. I would agree. Uh, Also, too, I would point out that in Job chapter 1, verse 6, we see, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. This passage, I don't see an easy way to interpret as being in reference to the sons of Seth. Right? The sons of God in this context seems pretty clearly to be uh, angels. Divine beings that God made who he has uh, a staff meeting with on a regular basis. They've come to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also comes with them because he is, after a fashion, one of them. And then the rest that follows stems from the conversation between Yahweh God, and Satan regarding Job. Also, two consider Jude, Jude chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, interesting key in on that word likewise, likewise, Indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, where it says likewise, you could say, "Well, that's just describing the pursuit of unnatural desire," but it's not talking about sexual immorality. And I would say, "Who says?" Right? I, I think it does. I think it is. I think it's both, and I think this is describing the angels who rebelled against God. They joined Satan's rebellion. Uh, Those angels indulging in sexual immorality, which is to say they can have sex, which is to say that they can do what my interpretation of Genesis 6, 4 would describe as uh, taking wives from the daughters of men and having children with them. That's a thing that they can do. It makes a lot of sense, actually, that they would do it to try and continue on their rebellion against God by making man in their image. God made man in his image. They, as false gods, are making men in their image. And they are setting up the seeds of the serpent versus the seed of the woman for a conflict. Also, consider Romans chapter 8. Now here, it gets interesting Verse 19 and 20, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I would read this as talking about the saints. That's the way I've always read it. But it can be the saints, it can be Christians, Christian men and women in the New Testament, and also be angels in the Old Testament. Both can be true. Both can be true. Uh, also consider in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, reading on down to 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling, passion, and despise authority. We see also in Paul's letter to Corinth, do you not know that we will judge angels? So there's a tension here where there's kind of a, you will, you will judge angels. We're told to test the spirits. And so that's also the case. We're told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. But then the second half of verse 10 here, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters, of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. So we have this idea that we are going to be put in a position of judgment over angels. Also, too, that there's something of a jealousy that angels feel towards us because salvation is open to us. Also, that it's possible for angels to sin. And so when Jesus talks about us not being married or given in marriage, in the kingdom come, we will be like the angels. That seems to me pretty clearly to mean we'll be like the angels who behave themselves and obey, not like the angels who sin. The angels who sin are the ones who left their proper abode and they pursued strange flesh, just like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah did. But speaking of strange flesh, moving on. Here's a current events item. Harris Rigby over at Not the Bee posted up. Yesterday, a story about a Utah school assignment that has kids eat ze bugs because cows are, quote, killing the world, end quote. From Fox, a middle school in Utah's Nebo School District gave sixth grade students disgusting insects to eat last week as part of an English assignment on climate change, claiming it would save the environment from cows which were, quote, killing the world, end quote, according to a mom who spoke with Fox News Digital. Quote, middle schoolers loved the U factor. Many of them gave bugs a try, and even a few staff members. Many thanks to our English teachers for creating fun and engaging lessons, the Spring Canyon Middle School said about the March 7th assignment. "Um, Pardon me for a moment. Pardon me for asking a simple question. What the hell does this have to do with... English, either speaking English or writing English fluently, competently. Well, how is this part of a English assignment? Does that, it doesn't have anything to do with English. This is propaganda again. This is nudging. This is indoctrination in a cult. This is you neo-paganism. Know, uh, also have I mentioned recently, and this is why we homeschool, buy my book. Go over to amazon.com, order a copy of my book today, and this is why we homeschool. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not going to eat your damn bugs. Klaus Schwab. Also from Not the Bee, this one from yesterday as well. DeSantis' response to Trump arrest report slams Manhattan DA as a Soros-funded prosecutor then fires a shot at Trump. I'm going to go ahead and play the audio for this. It's just a few minutes long, because I want you to hear, if you haven't yet, if you haven't heard it anywhere else, I want you to hear it here, how DeSantis, Florida's Republican governor, answers this question. Here's cut one. Take a listen.
1: Uh, We wanted to know what your thoughts are on the rumored Trump indictment, and if you have any role in it, um, if charges are brought on him, will you have any role in extradition to New York? So I've seen rumors swirl. I have not seen any facts uh, yet, and so I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know this, the the Manhattan District Attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. And so he, like other Soros-funded prosecutors, they weaponize their office to impose a political agenda on society at the expense of the rule of law and public safety. He has downgraded over 50% of the felonies to misdemeanors. He says he doesn't want to even have jail time for the vast, vast majority of crimes. And what we've seen in Manhattan is we've seen the the, the crime rate go up and we've seen citizens become less safe. And so you're talking about this situation with, and look, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. And um, I think that that's fundamentally wrong. I also think it's important to point out when you're talking about these Soros-funded prosecutors, yes, they may do a high-profile politicized prosecution, uh, and that's bad, but the real victims are ordinary New Yorkers, ordinary Americans in all these different jurisdictions that they get victimized every day because of the reckless political agenda that these Soros DAs bring to their job. They ignore crime and they empower criminals. And that hurts people, hurts a lot of people every single day. The Soros District Attorneys are a menace to society, and I'm just glad that I'm the only governor in the country that's actually removed one from office during my tenure. (laughs) And in terms of, um, we are not involved in this, won't be involved in this. Uh, I have no interest in getting involved in some type of manufactured circus by some Soros DA. Okay? He's trying to do a political spectacle. He's trying to virtue signal for his base. Uh, I've got real issues I've got to deal with here in the state of Florida. We're obviously shutting down uh, CBDC, which is important. We've got so many things pending in front of the legislature. Uh, I've got to spend my time on issues that actually matter to people. Uh, I can't spend my time. Uh, worrying about uh, things, things of that nature. So, so we're not going to be involved in it in any way. Um, I'm fighting for Floridians, and I'm fighting back against Biden. That's what I do every single day.
0: Uh, this is good. This is good. Good stuff. You know, it, a couple of things to draw out here. One, he has removed a Soros-backed district attorney, and we need more of that. We need more removals of Soros-backed district attorneys who are refusing to do their jobs. They were put in to be obstructionists. They were put in to create sludge in the system, to try and overwhelm the system, and more to the point, I think, to collapse American society. And DeSantis is exactly right. The people who are most hurt by all of this are normal people you'll never hear the names of who are victimized. There are actual victims. Victims are a thing that exists. I know far too many people pretend to be victims, but there is such a thing as a real victim. When somebody commits a crime against you, you are a victim of a crime. And when the people who are supposed to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil instead are punishing those who do good and rewarding those who do evil... They are refusing to do their jobs because they are activists, leftist activists. Um, Those folks ought to be removed, period. When the governor has the ability to do so, the governor should do so. If the governor doesn't, then he's complicit when he could do it. when he could do it, DeSantis was able to do it seems to me as though he shouldn't be glad, and I would quibble a little bit with DeSantis. He shouldn't be glad he's the only one who's done it. I think he should want for more Republican governors to follow his example there. I think he should call on more Republican governors to follow his example there. We need more of that. But I get what he's saying. Uh, Trump, whatever he did, allegedly, this is... Weaponization of government politic <laughs> uh political opponents of the Democrats of the radical left, getting a heavy-handed application of the law, an especially hard nosed application of the law to remove them from candidacy for elected office, all the while violent criminals, drug dealers, rapists being released, let go, sent back into the public to victimize more people. It's evil. It's evil what is being done there, and it needs to stop. And we need people who are in positions of government authority already, not just those who are running, to promise that they will, but those who are actually in positions of of government authority. We need them to actually do their jobs. That includes... Republican governors, that includes lawmakers, that includes city council members and sheriffs and county commissioners, that includes mayors. Whatever authority is had needs to be leveraged to protect the American people from abuse and negligence. And so what I hope, and I don't know what happens today, if Trump is arrested, that's going to be a circus. If he's not, arrested, it's still shameful that this is the talk around town. This is shameful. This does not represent us well to other countries. This does not project strength. It projects weakness. A house divided against itself cannot stand. We need to be people of high character and people who are honest and who have integrity. And we need to be known for that. You know, I just watched the movie 12 Strong featuring Chris Hemsworth as this Green Beret captain who leads 12 Green Berets into Afghanistan for what Al-Qaeda, according to the end credits, still considers to be its greatest defeat. Right after 9-11, these Green Berets went in and enlisted the help of a certain warlord, who was part of the Northern Alliance. And America provided air superiority and bombed Taliban positions and Al-Qaeda positions to soften up targets of opportunity so that this warlord could send his forces in to mop up and to take what had been held by the Taliban. And I watched this movie with my three oldest sons on the recommendation of my friend, Luke Bergman. I watched this movie and I thought to myself of the colossal blunder at best. That was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but it was borderline criminal how incompetent and irresponsible the withdrawal from Afghanistan was irresponsible to our people in country To our allies, people in country, speaking of shameful, that was just a huge black eye on American credibility where our allies are concerned. British Parliament censured Biden over that, by the way, because according to the government of the United Kingdom, there was little to no coordination from America on our withdrawal. We left... Afghan men, women, and children who had been partners with us, who had trusted us, who had allied themselves with us. We left them to torture, slavery, and murder at the hands of the Taliban and ISIS-K and Al-Qaeda. And we left some of our own people as well. And we left our allies' people as well. And it's an evil thing. It's an evil thing. It's not no big deal. It's not everybody makes mistakes. No, no. It's an evil thing. And we projected weakness with regards to Ukraine. I think the left and the globalists wanted to have happen what did happen. And now they're going to milk that for all that it's worth. There's a news story this morning that Russia claims to have intercepted B-52 bombers over the Baltic Sea on Monday. Yet another provocation but this is a two-way street. Russia is saying the U.S. is directly involved in the war in Ukraine. And it's hard for me to deny that. It's hard for me to argue. You know, it's an odd thing that we didn't just let Ukraine in to NATO. We played this Havsies game, and I believe that that was extraordinarily wrong and foolish and irresponsible. We said, well, maybe they'll enter, maybe they won't. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. And which is it, right? Were they a country that had such a problem with corruption that we were concerned about letting them into NATO? Or are they a trustworthy country that we can just send all of our most advanced weapon systems and just an endless amount of money to? All the while our banking systems are collapsing, you have Americans here struggling to feed their families and keep the lights on. And pay their rent and pay their mortgages, but we're going to send endless amounts of cash to Ukraine because Russia invaded. Are they a corrupt country or are they not a corrupt country? Are we concerned about whether they're trustworthy or are we not? If we were able to become so convinced after Russia invaded, it's a very curious thing that we didn't figure that out, that they were trustworthy before Russia invaded, because maybe just maybe that would have prevented Russia from invading if Russia had known we were going to spring a trap on them once they got in there. It seems to me as though we, and by we, I don't mean me, but the Biden administration and the Klaus Schwab, WEF types, used Ukraine as bait. And all the while that conservatives like myself here in America say, whoa, 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 wait a second. What are we doing? What's the exit strategy? What's the limit? Is this a blank check? The more folks like me ask questions like that with regards to Ukraine and point out inconsistencies in arming Ukrainian men while also talking about disarming American men, we're told, well, no, no, we've got to stop Russia. Yeah, what if we had? Prevented Russia from going in in the first place. Wouldn't that have been better? If we could have prevented this in the first place, wouldn't that have been better? I don't believe what we're seeing play out in Ukraine would have happened if Trump were in office. I don't believe that what we saw in the Afghanistan debacle would have happened if Trump were in office. I don't believe it for a moment. If Ron DeSantis does run in 2024 and wins, I don't believe we will have this kind of stuff happening under a president, DeSantis. I just don't. But we are having it happen with regularity under Biden and the radical left and the globalists. And where does it go? Where does it go from here? Well, in part, it goes to conversations like the one I'm going to link to in the description for this podcast episode. This will be cut to. This one will also be a few minutes long. Take a listen. This is really interesting stuff from a certain Timothy Snyder. He's a professor of history at Yale University, permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, briefing the UN Security Council on March 14th for a session called by the Russian Federation to discuss Russophobia. Take a listen. Here's cut two.
2: The term Russophobia is a claim by the imperial power that it is the victim, even as it is carrying out a war of atrocity. This is historically typical behavior. The imperial power dehumanizes the actual victim and claims to be the victim. When the victim opposes being attacked, being murdered, being colonized, the empire says that this is unreasonable, this is an illness, this is a phobia. This claim that the victims are irrational, that they are phobic, that they have a phobia is meant to distract from the actual experience of the victims in the real world, which is an experience, of course, of aggression and war and atrocity. The term Russophobia is imperial strategy designed to change the subject from an actual war of aggression to the feelings of the aggressors, thereby suppressing the existence and the experience of the people who are most harmed. The imperialist says, we are the only people here. We are the real victims. And our hurt feelings count more than other people's lives. Now, Russia's crimes can be and will be evaluated by Ukrainian law, because they take place on Ukrainian territory, and by international law. To the naked eye, we can see that there is a war of aggression, crimes of humanity, and genocide. The use of the word Russophobia, the claim that Ukrainians are ill rather than that they are experiencing an atrocity is colonial rhetoric and it's a part of a larger practice of hate speech that is why this session is important in russia's genocidal hate speech the idea that ukrainians have a disease called russophobia is used as an argument to destroy them along with the arguments that they are vermin parasites satanists and so on
0: interesting right interesting (laughs) What did he just say? What, what did he just say about using this term phobic or phobia? What did he just say? Let me ask you, okay? Set aside the whole Russia business for a moment. Let's talk about our family matters here in the US. Let's talk about the internal conversation, the internal dialogue in the US for a moment. Not to downplay what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Bad, bad stuff is happening there. Innocent men, women, and children are being harmed and have been harmed. Putin is a villain. I'm persuaded. But that said, just focus with me for a moment on how the term Russophobia is being characterized and what we are being told about the nature of the dismissal here, the flipping of the script here. Okay, sir, Yale professor, Timothy Snyder, now do transphobia. Let's talk about transphobia. Is that not exactly what's happening on that issue? Let's talk about homophobia. Is that not exactly what's being done with regards to so-called homophobia over the last hmm, 15 years or so, 10 to 15 years or so, at least? Now let's talk about Islamophobia. Is that not exactly what's been done with regards to those who have raised concerns about Muslim migration to the U.S. and to Europe for the last 20 years or so? That is, homosexuals launch an assault on a facet of society, on an institution, on people that they don't like. Transvestites, transgendered people launch an assault on people that they don't like in society, here at home, internal affairs. Let's talk about getting our own house in order first. Let's talk about getting the plank out of our own eye here first. Transgendered people launch an assault on Christians and conservatives in particular. And then when the folks that they are assaulting verbally, procedurally, bureaucratically, legislatively, corporately, politically, when those people say, whoa, hey, hold on, you are abusing me, you are hurting me, you are attacking me, you're in the wrong here. The dismissal is to imply that the people who are being victimized, who are objecting to their own victimization and to the victimization of others, have a mental illness. That same dehumanizing language is used for conservatives and for Christians to marginalize us, to sideline us, to silence us, to further victimize us. When we say, no, this is evil, this is wrong, this is bad, we're called phobic. And the left does this all day, every day. Thank you, Timothy Snyder, for accurately describing what it is that's happening here in the West. I would contend that we cannot help the Ukrainians or the Taiwanese or the Afghanis, If we collapse from within here in the U S we are in the process of collapsing from within because we are a house divided against ourselves, and we cannot stand Lincoln understood that Jesus told us that a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's the point. That's the reason why these folks are dividing us against ourselves and against one another because we won't be able to stand. It's a confusion tactic. It's highly manipulative. It's highly abusive highly corrosive. And actually it's interesting because I was just recently asked by my friend, Luke's wife, Caitlin Bergman, what I think of this term toxic, right? Toxic relationships. She was trying to weigh and measure whether some of her friendships, some of her relationships have characteristics of what is called toxic. Is that a good term? Is that the right term? Is that the right way to think about it? Is that useful? What does God's word say? She went to the text. She went to the scriptures, which is great. Really, really good. She asked me what I think of toxic as a label for certain friendships and relationships. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm un, I, I'm uncomfortable with it, right? I'm uncomfortable with using this term toxic when what I think we really are being conditioned as a society to avoid is using the term sinful. Because toxic is somewhat neutral. How did this toxin get here? Well, I don't know. Instead, we need to reframe. And if you want to use the term toxic to point to the question of, has someone been sinned against? Is someone sinning against God or their neighbor? Great. But it needs to go there, right? It needs to go there. Because then we've got a biblical prescription, If I'm being sinned against or I see someone else is being sinned against, I go and I talk privately with the one who's doing the sinning and I say, hey, let me explain what I'm observing. And maybe I win them over and maybe they repent and maybe they make it right. And maybe they restore peace with the person that they have sinned against, whether that's me or someone else. If I'm sinning against somebody and I realize that there might be a toxic element here to how I'm relating well, then I go and I make it right. and I apologize. I confess. I repent. I seek to make the other person whole again. I ask for their forgiveness. Well, so also here, to move <clears throat> the debate about Russia and Ukraine, for instance, into psychological language and to keep it there is to avoid... An objective standard of right and wrong. Even to talk about international law, to some extent, is limited in its utility because you ask yourself, well, where does international law get its authority from? Unless we're measuring international law against the law of God, what God says is good and evil, right and wrong, how are we going to know at any level, international, national, statewide, county level, citywide, how to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil? We will not know what evil is that we would punish evildoers. We will not know what good is that we would reward those who do it. Speaking of good, for the last item in this episode, I'm going to answer or speak to question five in the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Survey, arcforum.com slash surveys, where you can find it. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Q5 is, with regards to energy and resources, the question is, how do we provide the energy and other resources upon which all economies depend in a manner that is inexpensive, reliable, safe, and efficient, including in the developing world? Two words, fossil fuels. Fossil fuels. (laughs) Oil, gas, and coal are... Relatively inexpensive. They are abundant. Our economy is set up to run on them. The technology is there. The know how is there. The resources are there. That's how you provide the energy and other resources. You know, it's interesting. My son just sent me a link to some free plywood that's being given away in Fort Collins. Fort Collins is about a 30 minute drive, so an hour round trip. And if somebody's giving away some free plywood, that's great. And maybe we go pick it up. But then, even before I've looked at how much plywood it is, what that would actually cost if we were just buying it from the store, I'm thinking to myself, what does the gas in the tank cost to drive back and forth in the pickup? Is it worth it even to go get free lumber? Not if it's only so much. If it's a lot, oh, it might be worth it. Yeah. But the cost of energy changes the calculations on every other resource that we would transport. If you want to recycle, you want to make use of something that's already been made, just needs moved to a different location where it will actually be useful because it's not useful over here anymore, you need to transport it. And our transportation system runs on primarily, first and foremost, fossil fuels. The folks who don't want fossil fuels either don't know what they're talking about or they're anti-human or they are extraordinarily selfish. Resources for me, but not for thee. If we want inexpensive, reliable, safe, and efficient energy and other resources, we need to keep our economy running on what it has been running on reliably for decades, for the past century. Keep that up. And while you're running the economy on fossil fuels... By all means, continue refining the technology, the scalability of hydro and solar, geothermal. That's another one. If you can make that work, great. Nuclear, if you can make that work, great. But how do we get there, right? You know, imagine, if you will, somebody told me, Garrett, you have won a free Tesla. You didn't know somebody entered you in a raffle and you won. All you've got to do is come to Denver and pick up your free Tesla. That's all all you got to do. And it's all yours. And let's suppose I hop in my F-150 with my wife, our Ford F-150, and all the gas stations are out of fuel and the gas tank is empty. And I can't have my wife drive me to Denver to pick up this Tesla to drive it home. Am I getting the Tesla? No. (laughs) No, probably not. Unless I want to trek that and maybe I walk all the way, right? Maybe I do, but it's going to be a lot harder of a trip, a lot longer and possibly more dangerous if I take food and other supplies. I'm going by myself. My family's vulnerable while I'm away from them. I'm vulnerable while I'm on the road. If everybody's run out of gas, I assume we're in some kind of a post-apocalyptic scenario. People might try to hold me up on the highway and take what I have, take my food. Once I get the Tesla, maybe people will be trying to take the Tesla from me because they had gas vehicles as well. They've also run out of fuel. So also, the economy of the developed world, the developing world, you don't get to developing these renewable energies at scale in an affordable way, in an abundant, sustainable way that sustains life here on planet Earth at the scale we've had by abolishing fossil fuels. You don't. You don't. What would be best is stop fighting fossil fuel extraction, transportation, refining, Look for ways to make it as efficient as possible by supporting infrastructure projects, by supporting refining projects here in the U.S. So you don't have to transport it any farther than absolutely necessary. You can have it refined and turned into gas and diesel and electricity as close to the end user as possible. You will minimize spillage that way. You will minimize costs that way. You will maximize the efficiency that way. You'll also guarantee that the United States is more independent. Our allies, if we are about to enter into World War III here, are more independent that way. We want our allies to be able to stand beside us and not say, hey, sorry, guys, can't make it. Can't make it to World War III today. You're on your own. All our vehicles ran out of fuel. All our factories ran out of electricity. Would love to. Maybe next time, we got to think safe and efficient in terms of embracing fossil fuels, not trying to purge them from the economy. The only way to purge these things from the economy is to just accept you're gonna have a lot of people impoverished, a lot of people exposed to hazards which have been mitigated for a hundred years by inexpensive and abundant fossil fuels, fueling our transportation sectors. Electrifying our homes and businesses and places of worship, our schools, our stores, our public venues. You've got to be able to keep the lights on, Keep the ACE, Keep the AC on in the summer when it's hot. Keep the heat on in the winter when it's cold. That's very important for safety. And have the countries where the most professional people are doing the work do the work. I mean, what kind of a vote of no confidence is it when Democrats and the radical left here in the U.S. try to argue against Americans extracting their own energy in their own country, but then they turn right around and they want to buy oil and gas and coal from other countries? Really? Really. So you trust them to do this in a professional way, in a wise way, in a safe way. Why is that? Is that because a lot of those states are totalitarian like you are. A lot of those states are willing to cut a deal with you in helping you to realize your political ambitions. That's what this is, first and foremost. It's political. It's social. In some sense, it's theological. On the one hand, you have a cult that's built up around global warming. It's a kind of pantheism, neo-paganism, earth as mother, goddess, worship. And on the other hand, in what is left of Western civilization, you have Folks who believe that we've been given a dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply greatly, fill up the earth and subdue it, God said. Put me in that category. I'm in that category. That's why I'm coming up on 11 years in oil and gas. As an oil and gas professional, I work in automation. So this is what I do. This is what I do is to make sure that oil and gas are produced and transported in a way that is inexpensive, reliable, safe, and efficient. This is what puts food on the table for my family, for my wife and our eight kids and our ninth on the way in November. This is what puts a roof over our heads. This is what puts clothes on our backs, humanly speaking. And I know, I know for a fact that this is what facilitates the rest of my countrymen also being able to provide for their families, even if they don't work in oil and gas. They're driving to work in a car that most likely is fueled by oil and gas. They're going to work in a building that has the lights on to a great extent, thanks to oil and gas. They're using tools and devices and technology that must be made with petroleum products on a daily basis, all day, every day. look around the room at the things you use most often, your computer and your smartphone and a lot of your furniture A lot of the components that go into even your electric vehicle are made with petroleum products. You can't just get rid of it. And we do need to question why we want to. Who told us that that was such a good idea? Where do you think this stuff came from anyways? Do you think it came from Satan? Do you think that it's inherently evil? Or is this a good gift from God that needs to be used properly like every other good gift from God? Or else you can have dangerous effects. I would say very firmly Very confidently, it's the latter. This is a good gift from God. It's to be used properly or else it can have dangerous effects. But that's everything. That's anything and everything. You can't be so afraid of living that you avoid the conditions and the prerequisites for life. You need to trust God. We need to trust God. Good theology would go a long ways in helping us to think rightly about energy and resources and our economic realities. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Stay tuned. Our next episode, we're going to be getting into the whole golden calf business in Exodus. There's a lot to unpack there with implications for our day. Uh, Also, too, if you haven't yet, do consider subscribing to this podcast. 99 cents a month is all I'm asking. It's really a token more than anything. Sign up and you can listen to Nearly 200 episodes, which are right now subscriber only. You can subscribe to get notifications when the free episodes are released. That's different, right? That's different than paying 99 cents a month. That's all. That helps me pay for various licenses and fees that are annual, like registering the domain, like having a website, like having various utilities like Canva. There's not a huge cost to those things, but they do have a cost. And if you subscribe, you get access to all my content. A third of it is going to be closed off to you if you don't subscribe. So do, do sign up today. Don't wait. Also, please do encourage friends you have to subscribe as well if you think they would enjoy this content, if you think they would benefit from it. Maybe they wouldn't love every episode, but maybe the ones they would love would really benefit from. Share it with somebody you know and love. I'll thank you for it. But as I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.